our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day. And we thank You for the high privilege of gathering as Your people in worship. And we thank You for the privilege of this class that we can look at Your Word topically, look at specifically the wisdom of the Proverbs. We ask today that You would use this study to educate us, to teach us in Your truth, but so also prepare our hearts for worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time introducing this topic because I think that it's important, especially on the topic of righteousness, to make a distinction. I have on your handout printed out the first section of Proverbs on this topic. I doubt seriously that we're going to get to that today, but, you know... I like to think uh, optimistically. Actually, I don't. I don't like to think optimistically. I don't know why, actually, I did that. Maybe just planning ahead. Uh, but you'll have them there uh, so that we'll look toward that. And if we get to it today, so be it. But I want to begin with this question for you. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? This is according to the Bible. What 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 is what is righteousness? It's doing what is right, but it's also not doing righteousness to us. Okay, so let me just stop you there. So because we're going to talk about that. If if there is the sense of Christ applying something, we would need to know what that something is, right? So what is that something? It's more than an action, more than doing. It's either a state of being. Okay, so a, a state of being. Yeah, well, that's where we're going. What is that state of, of being? Um, okay, so being, being right with God, what is that right? Okay, so it's being right with God, something about being right, it's related to holiness. So it, 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 it could be related to, of course it is, related to justification. Justification is being justified as righteous, being, being made righteous, but uh, kind of hard to define, isn't it? The closest we've come to defining it is where Hilda started. Because everything else that everybody has said surrounds it. And oftentimes with righteousness, it's really easy for us to snuggle up next to it without really understanding what it is. Righteousness is simply doing what God tells us to do. Pretty simple. Doing what God tells us to do. Not so simple to live, though, is it? Righteousness is doing what is right in God's sight. Doing what is right in God's sight. To be righteous then, because notice that that's immediately where many of us went, is, okay, well, maybe it's justification. It has something about a state of, of being. So if we think about it that way, to be righteous is to do everything that is right in God's sight. Right? So, so to be righteous means... That every single aspect, my thought, my word, my deeds, even my senses, as uh, I believe it was Richard Baxter included in that list, 
All of that is to do perfectly what God calls us to do. It involves, if you look at Scripture on, on the topic or just do a topical study on righteousness, it includes following the whole counsel of God. Every bit of it as God has given us. And so the question becomes, and it's the obvious question, this is the kindergarten question, is anyone other than Christ perfectly righteous in thought, word, or deed? No. So the demands of true righteousness are so great and so many that none of us ever in this world achieves it perfectly. Is that, can we all agree on that today? Not one single person other than Christ is perfectly righteous. And so why in the world, if that is the case, do we see, and by the way, you can just flip over your handout and start looking, why are there so many Proverbs about the righteous? I mean, who are these Proverbs talking about? Are they talking about Christ? Hint. No. So, who are they talking about? And the point I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, drag out here is that in the Bible, we have to be, and I've said this a number of times in our study of the Proverbs, we have to be discerning readers, and we have to differentiate between a positional righteousness and an experiential righteousness a positional righteousness, and an experiential righteousness. Okay, so first we'll we'll start with this because this is where everybody wanted to go this morning, right? Justification, a state of being, holiness. We all want to jump here because we believe the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that we are positionally, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as legally righteous, Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as judicious, judicially, hmm, J-D-I-C-I, aha. Now I'm wondering if that's a word, judicious, judicially. Well, we're going we're gonna to say it's a word, judicially righteous, Okay. And so by this, what do we mean? What do we mean by positionally righteous? This is the... That's right. God has declared us righteous. And, and, and so what's, what's the definition of justification? Okay, we are legally, legally in God's sight for the sake of Christ and Christ alone by no merits of ourselves We are legally right in God's sight in the sense of a legal imputation of that righteousness. Now, to to be clear, and this is where some people, especially new Christians, stumble and get a little confused, this does not mean that that God cannot be displeased with His children. It doesn't mean that God cannot discipline His children. It doesn't mean that God cannot confront the sin in the lives of His children. All of this would be the the case. We think about the easy example of David. David was a child of God by faith in the promise that God had given him. But he also sinned and God disciplined David in severe ways. 
So, in this case, we need to understand that this positional righteousness doesn't mean that we cannot be disciplined, and it doesn't mean that, of course, we cannot sin. We see this show up sometimes in some of uh, the charismatic theology. Some of you may have encountered this before. Uh, Some charismatics will hold that by virtue of our justification by righteousness, therefore, they cannot commit any sin. And, and it's, a, it's a weird conversation if you've ever had this conversation with someone that holds to this and, and because what they do is they, they play with the definitions. And I'll say, well, uh, I had a guy that worked for me once upon a time that believed this and I said, so, so you're telling me, this is a, a guy who w- within a couple of months after this conversation committed adultery and left his wife, I said, so you're telling me that y- y- you don't sin anymore. Yep, that's right. I said, not ever in thought or word or deed. Nope, don't sin. I said, I beg to differ. I've seen you do it. I know you're capable of doing it. You know, I was a great boss to work for, right? And, uh, but, but, I, but I knew this guy, and I knew his character, and it was questionable. And, and, I, and I thought, but what he had done, he had done what? He had, and you'll see this sometimes, uh, even in, I might add, I I'm, I'm, I'm want to be very careful in saying this, uh, the charismatics take it way overboard, but even sometimes in Lutheran theology, you'll see uh, what I call an over-actualization of justification. And so we want to be careful of that. Nevertheless, we also don't want to underemphasize the fact that we are indeed positionally right with God in Christ. So what do we mean by experientially, experiential righteousness? The Proverbs. Great example. I'm going to show you for the next several weeks over and over and over and over again what experiential righteousness is. But you've read the Proverbs, so you tell me, based on your reading of the Proverbs, what does experiential righteousness mean? Because it doesn't mean positional righteousness. We'll just throw out a few words to get you guys brainstorming. Um, If I say that man or that woman is a person of integrity, am I saying that they are perfectly spotless without sin in their lives, completely righteous? Nope. What am I saying? Yeah, as best they can, as a fallen sinner, by God's grace, they live experientially in a way that would be in keeping with what God has revealed in His will as righteous living. They live according to to that. What are some other words that come to mind? And I know they're out there because when I was doing this study on the Proverbs in this section, I found at least three synonyms of the word righteousness. So so we're going to see them. I know they're there, but what are some other words or expressions that you can think of? Honorable. What else? Upright is one of the synonyms. Yeah. And one of the, the fascinating things about that Hebrew word 
the word upright, it, it creates the imagery of here is the standard of God and it is someone who is seeking to align themselves, to parallel themselves with the standard of God. It's a, it's a fascinating Hebrew word. What else? Any other words that come to mind? So the presumption of the Proverbs, and this is important to note, the presumption of the Proverbs... Uh, similar to, for example, Ecclesiastes. The presumption is, is that the reader is a covenant child of God. So in Old Testament vernacular, we would say that this is an Israelite who has been circumcised, who has been taught that they are also to be circumcised of the heart. In New Covenant terminology, we would say that this is a baptized child of believing parents and they are seeking to live according to the standard that God has called them to live to. But the presumption of the Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, for that matter, is that the reader is the student of the Proverbs, is a covenant child of God. And therefore, the presumption is that they know God. And whether they have professed faith or not, they know, at least in the sense of who God is, that He is to believe, be believed, He is to be trusted. And so that's why right at the beginning of Proverbs, in Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verse 7, we read this, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." You say that to a covenant child of God. Right? You say it to someone, you're not, uh, it, it's, it's like I say as the pastor of this church, um, I don't spend time on apologetics. Um, I'll, I'll get emails or texts from people sometimes and, and, and they'll be like, did you see so-and-so? He's a real zinger for there's a God. And I'm like, not, not in my pay grade. Um, I, I'm not trying to convince anybody here that there is a God. Um, there's a God. There you go. There's my apologetics 101. I'll just take that for the next decade. And, uh, but what I'm trying to do is to teach the covenant people of God the truth of God's Word that we may live in an upright, honorable uh, 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 people of integrity, that we may live in righteousness. And the proverb says that that starts with a right understanding of who God is, a right reverence, a right awe of God. It's why Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a confusing uh, book for some new Christians. Uh, and it's, it's, it's why I love to teach Ecclesiastes. I've said before, unashamedly, it's my favorite book of the entire Bible. And, but some people get confused because they're reading along and they expect him to make some sort of gospel presentation at the end of Ecclesiastes. And instead Solomon says what? The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. You don't say that to an unbeliever. You say that to a covenant child of God because that person has to understand the context of biblical authority. They have to understand the context of God. There is a God that He is to be feared and that there is a revelation that God has given through His commandments, so forth and so on. And it's why the Proverbs, this is where I'm getting, it's why the Proverbs explains the blessings of living righteously and the curses that follow those who live in wickedness. 
And you got to understand this, or all of these Proverbs dealing with righteousness and wickedness, you are going to get really jumbled up. And you're going to go, man, I don't even know what this Bible is saying. You've got to understand this from the very beginning. The writer of Proverbs, 99% of the time, is writing about experiential righteousness. So if you presume proverbial righteousness is judicial standing, then you miss what the Proverbs have to say. The righteousness, and again, newsflash, the righteousness that is described in the Proverbs is not a proponent of meriting salvation. The Proverbs is not saying, now, if you live this way, this will earn your right standing with God. We all understand that. But you'll even see this, especially with dispensationalists, where they'll try to create a divide. And they'll say, well, you know those Proverbs. I don't waste my time with those. That's Old Covenant. Because all those Proverbs are trying to tell us that we need to earn a righteous standing with God. Or someone will say, well, you know, uh, uh, Solomon, he wrote that Ecclesiastes, Old Covenant. Because you know all those Old Covenant people, they didn't believe in righteousness by faith. They believed in earning righteousness. Yeah, that's about as true as the rapture. (laughs) Not true. See also what? Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 puts a knife in the heart of dispensationalism and in the heart of reading the Proverbs wrong because it tells us something about Abraham. How was Abraham counted as righteousness? Romans chapter 4 verse 11. It counted to him as righteousness. That's exactly right. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in the Old Covenant there is faith. In the New Covenant there is faith. The Old Covenant faith looked in faith toward the coming of the promised one. We look back to the full revelation, Hebrews chapter 1, of Christ, and we are saved and positionally righteous before God only by faith. But experientially, how we live out our lives needs to be distinguished because what you can get And I've said this before, I think I've said this probably too many times, but I'm going to say it again. You see this mentality of the grace-only movement wiggle and worm or snake its way even into conservative Reformed denominations like our own. And you'll see somebody all of a sudden completely disregard Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 where Paul starts out and says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And there's all these people that worm their way into churches and go, Yeah! Because that exalts God. So my sin makes God look awesome. Yay, sin! Of course, they would never say that, but that's how their actions are. That's how their behavior is. That is anti-gospel. What's Paul say in the rest of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2? What shall we say then that grace may, that shall we go on sin that grace may abound? What's Paul say? God forbid, God forbid by no means. Yeah. Well, you're skipping ahead. That's verse 3 and 4. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. By no means we who have died to sin cannot live in it any longer. In other words, what Paul's saying here, and this is key. We who are positionally righteous in Christ are to live experientially righteous. That's key. You can't divorce the two. 
That's why Proverbs is such the perfect book for a Christian who is trying to grow in their understanding of the ways of God because it's very practical. Now, with that being said, who then are the wicked? Who then are the wicked? Because I'm going to show you proverb after proverb after proverb that tells us about this righteous, it's a noun, describing someone, and it's also going to tell us about the wicked, noun, describing someone. So who are the wicked? Yeah, I mean, you get to a certain point, you can provide just deduction here, right? It's those who don't seek to live right according to the standards of God. It's those who do not. A good way to put it would be just to go to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and just do the reverse. Those who do not fear God, right? That would be an easy way. But they don't fear God, and therefore they do not do what is right in His sight. Now, here's the, the next thing that I want you to remember, and I, I taught this in the very first class on the Proverbs. Now I'm going to remind you. Remember that when the Proverbs is speaking in truisms, what we will typically find is we will see ourselves in both the righteous and the wicked. Don't dismiss that. It can be a little disturbing. I have faith. You're good students of the Bible. You can work your way through this discerningly. Sometimes we'll lead, read a proverb and we'll sound more like the wicked than the righteous. Now that is intentional. The sage is employing the, a poetic device that sprinkles this truth to us where we go, oh no, this, this is concerning. Not for us to go, oh, I must not be positionally right with God. I must not be a Christian. That's not what he's doing there. What he's doing is he's trying to show us experientially in our lives where we have blind spots about our sin. And so don't read just the section on righteous. There will be two clauses typically in a proverb on righteousness and the wicked. And don't just read the one and go, well, I'm positionally righteous. I must be like that righteous one. No, what we're to do is we're to read it and go, hmm, is there any part of my behavior, is there any part of my character that I see listed with the wicked? That's not good. I need to correct course. I need to change behavior. Likewise, in terms of the righteous in the proverb, when you come to the section that talks about the righteous, that is what we are supposed to see in ourselves. And that is what we are to aspire to live experientially. So <clears throat> it's important to, to remember that, uh, that distinction. It's also important for us to remember uh, that the Proverbs, you've heard me say this a number of times, the Proverbs are not, you could probably finish this for me, couldn't you? Promises. So you're going to read in the upcoming study where it will say something about the righteous, ba, 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 ba. And if you read it as a promise, then you may live with the integrity of Job and not experience that. Why is that? Because the Proverbs are, you've heard me say this before, they're not promises, right? 
There are, they are, literarily speaking, they are truisms. Which means that when we read about the righteous, and it says, this happens for the righteous, that means that, in general, the way that God has designed things, according to His economy, this is the way the world works. And when you live in this way, God blesses that way. But it doesn't mean that God promises to bless that. See also the book of Job. Prime example of how someone can live with integrity and yet face turmoil. Furthermore, the righteous are susceptible to falling. Now, as good conservative traditional Presbyterians, I suppose I don't need to say this, but when we read about the fall, and there are a couple of Proverbs that actually deal with the righteous falling. I think there are two that I've included in this study. Um, it's not talking about positionally falling, right? Does it mean that because someone falls into sin, that is a true believer, that by virtue of that, that sin, they can lose their salvation, that they can fall from salvation? Again, <clears throat> I've taught on this uh, in previous classes from the larger catechism as well as the confession. Uh, we know that we are susceptible to sin. doesn't mean that we fall from salvation, but it does mean that we can be entangled, and yet, as Proverbs 25, 26... Do I have that on your handout? I think I do. Yeah, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. The idea there is that there is someone who lives a life of integrity, a child of God who's living uh, in an honorable and upright way, and by virtue of the temptation and the influence of the wicked, they fall, which the, 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 the wicked just rejoice, don't they? Ah, what a pleasure it is to see a child of God fall in, into sin. And what does Solomon, what does the sage say about that? Not that they lose their salvation, but what? Myers things up. It's like mucky water. Nasty. It's like that kind of, if, uh, if you've ever been in a stream that has a high sulfur content from all the mud and everything, it just smells bad, looks bad. It's not that beautiful cold trout stream that's clear, but rather it's like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain. Therefore, like most Proverbs, we should look for ourselves in both the righteous and the wicked because it's talking about experiential righteousness and experiential wickedness. We, again, <clears throat> and I'm beating the dead horse here, but we should not read the Proverbs like it's a mathematical formula. Uh, living righteously equals trouble-free existence or troubles equal a lack of righteousness. Um, I remember a man who just went through incredible, incredible turmoil uh, in his life. I mean, everything that could happen bad to that man happened and uh, went to his church for counsel. And uh, the church said, well, it's, it's all your fault because you have hidden, unconfessed sin in your life. And he's like, what? Tell me what it is. I'll confess it. I'll, I'll do anything I can right now. Nope. No, it's, it's just, it's just the way it is. You, 
I mean, the, the guy dropped into just a severe depression, ended up leaving this town, and I don't even know where he is today, but it was a horrible time in his lives because of really, really bad theology. Uh, Proverbs 24, 16 says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And we'll come back to that topic in, uh, in, as we work our way through this. So, are there any questions before we dive right in here to the Proverbs about distinction between positional and experiential righteousness? No, because remember, the, the, he's not writing in, in absolute. He is writing in absolutes to teach us to look at it not in, in absolutes. And in other words, uh, he, he is in the sense of the total vileness of the wickedness that the sage is going to describe. Uh, in, in that sense, it would be of the reprobate. But if we read it as if we're interpreting it through that lens, will miss the truth that it's teaching us who are children of God. And so we, we, we want to read it in, in that sense, interpretively relative to uh, real life. Yes? Yeah. 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 That that that's right. That's that tie-in between positional and experiential righteousness. That's good. Any other questions? All right. Let's dive in. Understanding and applying the proverbs. What are the characteristics of the righteous? Or conversely, what are the characteristics of the wicked? Um, and we're, of course, not going to get through all of this today, but let's look at this. Uh, I've got these in no specific order, just topically arranged. Um, let's start with this first one. Uh, characteristic of the righteous, pursues righteousness for the love of God. Proverbs 15.9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Uh, what does this tell us about, what does pursuit of righteousness tell us about, quote-unquote, the righteous? What do we pursue in life? Not everybody at once. All right, so what does pursuit teach us? What does pursuit tell us about ourselves? Right, and why? It's important to us. You pursue what is important to you and what you desire. And everybody knows this. If the sermon goes long and gets really close to lunchtime, right? And we desire food and we will pursue it quickly after the service. 
right? So we, we pursue that which is important to us. We pursue that which we desire. So what does the pursuit of righteousness tell us about the experientially righteous person, the upright man or woman? That's right. I mean, that part of our growth in grace is developing a pursuit of righteousness. You think about this uh, depending on what time you came to faith. Uh, if you came to faith as an adult, you would probably uh, understand this uh, per- perhaps more starkly, is when you came to faith in Christ, the things that you once desired, uh, you no longer desired, or at least uh, you, you saw them for what they are. You saw them as, as, as wrong and as of sin while you might not have before. But as you matured in Christ, you've probably noticed that as you mature in Christ, the Lord begins to work on those sinful desires and begins to change your appetites, begins to change uh, your desires. And so what it tells us about the righteous person is that what they desire and what they place as an utmost importance is the righteousness of God. The first clause of this tells us something very simple. I've said before, abomination is a noun. What's the verb form of the Hebrew word abomination? Remember when I taught this? So it's it's the verb to hate. Right? And, and, and so it says the way of the wicked, meaning the behavior, what the wicked do, who hates that? Yeah, so this is a, a pretty straightforward uh, proverb, right? We understand God hates sin, and He hates when anyone made in His image is involved in it as a way or as a path of sin, but He who loves, the one who is righteous, has a desire for righteousness. They pursue after it because it's important. Number two, and this is probably where we're going to end today, speaks righteously. Speaks righteously. So the first characteristic was pursuit. The second was speech. And I just, this was so much fun to research. I was like, Maybe I should just do one or two verses to give them a sampling. And they're like, no, I'm going to throw them all. Because the Proverbs has so much to say about our words. It's incredible how consistently there are things. I'll chase a rabbit for just a second. There are topics. This is what, you know, maybe I'm easily surprised. Surprise John 2022. There were things when I began to arrange the Proverbs topically that I thought that the Proverbs would speak to, and it, the Proverbs were either silent or spoke little to. And then there were some things that I thought were so obvious that I wouldn't expect the Proverbs to elaborate on, and they do, and speech is one of them. Let's look at this together. Proverbs ten eleven, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So the mouth is a metaphor for what? Our speech, the words that we say. How is the mouth, how is our speech a fountain of life? What ways, in what ways experientially could the words that we say be a fountain of life? 
Okay, those are two good ones right there. In words of encouragement, uh, true encouragement, words of truth, speaking of the truth. What else? How is our speech like a fountain of life? How is it life-giving, right? So consider the metaphor there. Fountain, so this is water that is flowing abundantly. Life, we can understand this metaphorically to the experiential benefits to us as human beings. So how is our speech like a fountain of life? Well, on the, on the one hand, words of encouragement build us up. Uh, truth, we hear the truth and it's believed. What else? Joy. Hearing someone speak the truth gives us joy and it can encourage us. I mean, he's not here today. I'm looking around for him. Uh, so, um, but hey, Rusty is a man that has understood that words are a fountain of life. And, uh, and, and many of us who have gotten to, to know him, so I was going to pick on him, and he's, he's not here, uh, but he truly has a gift of building others up. Well, now let's look at the second clause. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Now, <clears throat> again, remember that the sage is teaching us in what's called poetic parallelism. But remember, often the sage will not make it a direct parallel. So it's not an apples to apples. It's an apples to uh, pears, maybe. Uh, so he's giving us the, the, the parallel comparison, but now he changes it from fountain of life to instead of lake of depravity, he uses conceals violence. What does that mean? What does it mean that the wicked conceals violence? Okay, all right, so they're, they're, what they say is not trustworthy. Yeah, they're duplicitous in, in, in their speech. Yep, what else? The, the violence throws you, doesn't it? Like, what in the world? I get it, but why not say conceals truth? Why violence? And there are different, and hopefully I've got your mind going here and you're thinking about this, uh, the, the different commentators will look at this at, at, at different perspectives, but the general idea is, is that so powerful, so we're thinking about James here, so powerful is the tongue that it indeed, what's James say, it can set a forest ablaze. The tongue can commit violence to the point where it defeats and demeans someone who's made in the image of, of God. In this sense, it is an act of violence against another human being, but as J.D. pointed out, to conceal is to hide with malintent, is to create an illusion as if what they're speaking might be true, but in reality the intention of their words is in fact intended for violence. So, <clears throat> the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals, hides violence. Yeah, flattery over and over again through the Proverbs. We've seen that, haven't we, where, where that's pointed out. That would be the opposite of speaking the truth. Uh, flattery is, 
in fact, I think there's a proverb we're going to look at where the wicked are aligned with those who flatter. Proverbs 10, 20, and 21. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. I could have broken these into two, uh, but I left them together here because I think it's teaching the general same concept. Uh, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, meaning what? Precious. If you know someone who is a man or woman of integrity, uh, number one, they're probably a person of few words, right? Uh, according to the other Proverbs we've looked at. But also, when they speak, they don't have to say, gosh, I wish somebody would listen to me. People listen, don't they? Because their words are of value. Their words are as valuable as precious metal. But the heart of the wicked is of little worth. Note the parallelism. It shifts from the tongue to the heart. So we're talking about the tongue of the righteous, the heart of the wicked. Does this mean that the heart of the righteous is not righteous? No. What the sage is doing here is he's showing us that out of the righteous person flows righteous words, value. But of the wicked, their heart is bent on evil. So anything that comes out of the wicked, there's no value to it. There's no benefit to it. Proverbs 10.31, uh, no, the second clause, or second sentence, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Lips is a metaphor for our speech. The speech of the righteous feed many. It's the same concept as the fountain of life, isn't it? Again, the figurative idea that what comes out of the righteous person's mouth is of benefit to others, but the fool, there's no benefit to what they say, and they're stupid anyway, right? Proverbs 10.31, we got to hurry. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Proverbs 10.32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. And I've, I'm just end on this. Note the verb know. The lips of the righteous, they know. They know right from wrong. They know what is acceptable to God. They know what is unacceptable. And then look at the, the second. The mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. The idea there is that the wicked are just babbling on. That mouth's a moving, right? They're babbling on. And what comes out of their mouth is that which is opposed to God. The idea of perverse here is that which is contrary to the fear of God. And I'm probably got a misspelling there. It should be A, B, C, D, right? Yeah, not A, B, C, C, I guess, depending on what I put on your handout. All right, so next week what we'll do is we will look at the third item on your handout, uh, is remembered. Uh, the righteous are remembered, and they're remembered as a blessing. So that's a good way for us to go out, isn't it? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank You for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And as we consider the topic of righteousness, we find in ourselves to be lacking in so many ways experientially. And so we thank you 
that while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, Christ died for us, and that by Your grace You have given us through faith His righteousness, that we might be counted perfectly righteous in Your sight. And now we pray that we would be holy as You are holy. That we would be a people who live out in our lives who we are in Christ. We pray that You would enable us, empower us, encourage us to do this by Your Holy Spirit. We pray dependently in Jesus' name. Amen.